Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Have you joined that travel club yet? Well, here's why you should. You'll be the first to know when we're on the go. You get to be part of some fantastic destinations and group trips, and you get to meet and travel with some awesome people. The website is TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and join in the fun. We are celebrating some wonderful things this year. Milestones, our 25th anniversary for Advantage International. That's our travel company. And also its principal partners are turning some milestones. We're graduating to the next level, 60 and 65. We're calling it silver, sapphire, and diamond. Yes, silver, sapphire, and diamond, 25, 60, and 65. And we're going to do that in a big way. We have several destinations coming up this year in celebration, one of which is going to be the privately chartered luxury small cruiser in Croatia from Split to Dubrovnik. It's going to be July 29th to August 6th, and it'll be our own privately chartered vessel. 17 cabins on board only, and we're already halfway sold out. So if you want to get on board, you want to do that, we're going to have an ultra luxurious experience. And we're going to have some cooking classes because if you've ever been to Croatia, you know, the food there is amazing. And they have top chefs on board our small cruiser that's going to be fixing some wonderful dishes for us. We're going to do some wine tasting and we're going to, we're not going to dive, but we are going out to the bay to pull fresh oysters out of the water. I mean, the experiences are going to be wonderful. Of course, some kayaking and we are going to have one major celebration on board for our silver sapphire and diamond. Yes. So make sure you come with and join us. Travelingculturati.com is where you can get in on the fun and join the trip and destination. I just love celebrating Black history. And while Black history is history in general and is 365, February is when we make an extra effort to highlight, spotlight, and to celebrate. Today, I'm chatting with Ricky Stevenson an African-American woman who parlayed her domestic and international experiences into curating Black Paris tours. Later in the Culture Report, I'm chatting with Bernard C. Turner, Executive Director of the Black Metropolis National Heritage Area Commission. But right now, I've got some travel news. Chicago has kicked off its Black Restaurant Week, and it will continue until February 26th. However, there are some Black Restaurant Weeks celebrated around the country that highlight Black-owned culinary businesses. BlackRestaurantWeeks.com is where you can get the full lineup, but I have some of them for you here. For example, the Northwest will have Black Restaurant Week February 24th through March 5th. Southwest region of the United States will celebrate March 17 through 26. Houston, Texas, April 2nd through the 16th. The Carolinas, April 28 to March 7. Bay Area, California, 
May 19 to 28. And in the Northeast, June 2nd through June 11th. And New York has to stand out on its own. June 19 through July 2nd. Toronto, yeah, our neighbors to the north, July 7th through July 16th, Greater Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, July 16th through 30, Atlanta, Georgia, August 6th through August 20th, Los Angeles, California, August 25th through September 3rd, Midwest, September 10 through 24, Southeast region is going to be September 28th to October 8th, the Gulf Coast, October 20 through 29, and Florida, November 10 through the 19th. So I'm sure you're covered in one of the regions, but again, you can get more information at blackrestaurantweeks.com. Well, Disney has announced that the National Geographic document series, Black Travel Across America, will be coming to Disney Plus in the United States on Friday, February 24th. Travel consultant Martinique Lewis embarks on a journey to visit historically listed Green Book locations and modern Black travel destinations. The Green Book was the brainchild of Harlem-based postman Victor Hugo Green. The Green Book provided African Americans with advice on safe places to eat and sleep while touring a divided America. The documentary follows hosts as they embark on a journey across America visiting modern-day historic landmarks from the Green Book, gaining new insights and stories of these historically rich locations from local experts. I'll be tuning in. I hope you do too. Airlines for America debuted an advertisement on Super Bowl Sunday, highlighting airlines' ongoing efforts to highlight the aggressive hiring campaigns across the industry to hire mechanics, gate agents, pilots, flight attendants, and many other jobs. It stated, last year alone, airlines have helped 50,000 new careers take flight, adding thousands of new jobs every month. So if you're looking for a job and career in the airline industry, you can get more information at airlines.org forward slash jobs. Yay. Now Machu Picchu is set to reopen. It officially reopened on February 15th. Peru's most iconic landmark is ready to welcome tourists once again. It was closed in January amid protests nationwide, including nearby Cusco. The train service from Cusco restarted last week. A maximum of 2,500 people are allowed access daily. Some tourists have already made their way to Machu Picchu, Cusco, and the Sacred Valley. They're all now open. It's a very big step towards a return to normal tourism services. Well, Happy Trails is a Beverly Hills tour list that has launched. Beverly Hills Conference and Visitors Bureau announced the debut of Happy Trails. It's a series of eight walking Beverly Hills tours. The Beverly Hills Happy Trails maps will guide foodies, history buffs, and art aficionados on a personalized journey. The full list includes Caviar and Bubbly Trail, where you can explore the finest culinary spots for decadent day of dining from Jean Georges at the Waldorf Astoria Beverly Hills to Wally's Beverly Hills. You have Sweets and Treats Trail. It's a delectable trail that will take you to some of the finest chocolates, pastries, cakes, and ice cream in the area. Also a step back in history trail. It's history and movie history. It's history and movie buffs can explore the city's legends, including Fred Heyman Place, 
the Beverly Hilton, home to the Golden Globe Awards, and a whole lot more. Then you have Seen and Be Seen. It'll be home to the celebrities and a backdrop for future films and television shows since its inception. Red Carpet Ready Trail is the endless red carpet events and award shows that Beverly Hills is known for. Around the World Trail, you can spend a day traveling from one country to the next, all within Beverly Hills. An Artist's Dream Trail, where you can find artistic cultural experiences. The Great Outdoors Trail, which is a twist on the traditional breath of fresh air. It's a path of greenery and gardens and mansions. Sounds like a lot of fun and different ways to see Beverly Hills. President Biden and his administration are moving forward toward blocking the JetBlue and Spirit merger. The Justice Department is likely to sue to block a pending $3.8 billion merger between JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. It's the largest anti-monopoly move by the Biden administration, which has also shown increasing interest in policing air travel. The department could file suit as soon as March. Some of the people said that... They cautioned that the investigation is ongoing and no final decision has been made. People in the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division have competing opinions about whether to bring a case. If the department goes ahead, a suit would come at a time of immense upheaval for the airline industry, including the December debacle in which Southwest Airlines canceled more than 16,000 flights during Christmas holiday. That episode helped stoke anger from consumers and regulators amid complaints that decades of mergers have left passengers at the mercy of the monolithic airline industry. Federal antitrust regulators have taken a hard line against a range of powerful businesses under President Joe Biden, including a recent DOJ lawsuit aimed at breaking up Google's advertising business and the Federal Trade Commission's unsuccessful attempt to stop Facebook's parent from buying a fitness app. Justice Department lawyers have been scrutinizing the proposed JetBlue Spirit merger, which would create the fifth largest airline since last summer, interviewing executives, competitors, and others to gather evidence for a potential challenge. A separate person with knowledge of the deal said that the airline's have long anticipated a DOJ lawsuit, which they argue will crimp their ability to compete against larger U.S. rivals. In recent weeks, leadership at the DOJ's antitrust division has been looking to expand the team investigating the merger, with an eye towards filing a lawsuit very soon. Some of the people think that it'll be in March. Spirit said it expects the department to make a decision in the coming month. In a statement, JetBlue spokesperson said the merger will create a long-overdue national low-fare challenger to the other four largest airlines, forcing them to lower fares and improve service. In addition, JetBlue's chief operating officer told Reuters the airlines are still optimistic they can avoid the lawsuit. What's interesting about this is that during the Obama-era Justice Department, They drew heavy criticism for allowing the merger between American Airlines and U.S. Airlines as one of the major airline deals that led the U.S. just having four big carriers. They are American, Delta, United, and Southwest. But in addition to the general concerns around consolidation, JetBlue Spirit deal faces several specific hurdles that will make the path to approval even more difficult. 
Among those is the JetBlue and American ruling. They are waiting on a ruling from Massachusetts federal judge on a partnership inked in 2020 between the two on routes originating at several Northeast U.S. airports. DOJ and bipartisan group of states, including Massachusetts, California, Arizona, and Florida, challenged the deal in a civil trial last year. That JetBlue American case, which involves an agreement between the two, known as the Northeast Alliance, the two airlines are sharing routes, bookings, and passengers in airports like Boston and New York City. So how does that impact the Spirit and JetBlue merger? And it's interesting that Spirit Vice President testified against the JetBlue American agreement. But there is some future fear that if the JetBlue American agreement, not a merger, but an agreement, an alliance goes through, and then the JetBlue Spirit merger goes through, that that will be a further step toward a monopoly in the airline industry. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, I'm chatting with Ricky Stevenson, founder of Black Paris Tours on her journey to Paris and curating her Black Paris Tours. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, don't forget to join the Travel Club because we go to some fantastic places and we would love to have you come with. I'm super excited about my guest today, Ricky Stevenson, founder and CEO of Black Paris Tours. Two things I love, Paris and Black history. Well, hello, Ricky, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Merci, madame. Bonjour. Hi, how are you? Bonjour. I'm great, thank you. Unfortunately, that's the limit of my French. So, (laughs) well, I do know we, I do know a few things, and certainly I read menus quite well because I'm a huge foodie. You know, and that's what I tell all travelers when they come here. The first thing to do is learn to say just the basics. Bonjour, madame. Bonjour, monsieur. Merci, madame. Merci, monsieur. It's like saying... Abracadabra, give me what I want. I'm not French. I can't speak French, but I'm going to be polite. And the French love that. I mean, it's like the code words for how do you get in. And wherever you travel to, as you said, it's a sign of politeness and a sign of respect. And of course, you know, they'll even laugh with you if you're mispronouncing something. But the attempt to say, I respect the fact that I am here and I respect your culture and I want to be here and I want to learn. That's what it, it really says. Yes. Say <laughs> I had a lady the day before yesterday and she walked up to a man and she started talking to him and he looked at her and he said, Bonjour, madame. And she says, Oh, 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 okay. Bonjour, monsieur. And he says, Can I help you? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And you'll find that they are willing to be your teacher of sorts as well, if they see that you're trying. And that part of it, I absolutely love. And you see the response is completely different, as you mentioned, that they Mm -hmm. love it. So 
the response is completely different in how they interact with you as well. Again, super excited to have you on today. Now, you're originally from Oakland, California. So tell us about your time there. Okay. Born into a Navy family. My mother and father met married in San Francisco. We moved around. I was born in Oakland. We moved to San Diego. We moved a lot of different places. We were in Kansas City. We were in Tennessee. I'm like, aren't we in the Navy? (laughs) (laughs) But the one thing that was interesting is my mother had been a professional dancer before she married my dad. She was a child of the Depression, grew up in Denver, Colorado, went out into the world as a dancer and had a really good life. You know how your mother doesn't tell you everything, but you find pictures of her. I'm like, what are you doing with Louis Armstrong? What are you doing with Rochester? What are you doing with Betty Grable? So she had that life. And then my father, interestingly enough, my dad is from Oklahoma. We're Oklahoma Black Stevensons. And I had great uncles and great grandfather who could talk about our history in terms of we were Africans who were brought from the West Coast of Africa to Florida to have been enslaved, refused to be enslaved, escaped into the swamps of Florida, connected with the Native Americans and became known as the Seminole Indians. And that just means those Black Indians that cannot be controlled. And so when these two got together, my father's family from Boley, Oklahoma, Wild Horse Creek, and Greenwood. And I think a lot of people now know the history of the 1921 bombing of Black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with all of that history in my early childhood. When I was three, my mother took me to see Josephine Baker perform. We went from San Diego to Los Angeles. When I was 10, my parents took us to see Josephine Baker perform again. I got to meet James Baldwin on Stanford campus when I was 11. My mother would get Ebony Jr. We had Ebony Jet come to the house all the time. I had a great uncle, my mother's uncle, who had fought in France during World War I. Good looking man, Uncle Porter Walls. He had lied and said he was 18 when he was really 16 to leave Little Rock, Arkansas. And when he had gone through this ordeal of fighting as a soldier in France and been treated like a conquering hero, in France, adored, respected. And when he went back to Little Rock, he and many thousands of other Black soldiers would change the dynamics of the way they were living. And out of his determination, he had a granddaughter, my cousin, who was one of the Little Rock Nine. So there was always this foundation of Black history, who we were as a people, and what our history was. So when I was a little kid, I think I was six, I decided that when I grew up, I was going to become a news reporter. I was going to go to New York, (laughs) become a news reporter to tell our side of the story. Because invariably, if you watch the Today Show or any of these other news shows, they would actually belittle whatever we did. It was always... Black people, stupid. Black people don't know how to do this. They're the thugs. They're the causing commotion in high school. Whatever would happen in my community. My community was East Palo Alto, California. Eventually, it became known as Nairobi, California. And whatever happened in our community would be thugs riot. On the other side of the freeway, Atherton, one of the wealthiest communities in the United States, it would be, oh, hijinks and spring fun. And that, again, would push me, I'm going to become a reporter. I'm going to tell the truth 
about who we are. Because if you all don't know about the bombing of Black Wall Street, if you don't know about Marcus Garvey, if you don't know about the people who were delivered to my mother's doorstep every month in terms of the magazines and the things that she would read and read to us, then we have to go a little further. That is so commendable. And it also is proof of how passing down your family's history is so important. It's extremely important. And unfortunately, I find that some of that is lacking today. But we, our generation, had it where our parents told us the story of their life and their parents and the parents before them. And we were entrenched in our own history, which is Black history as well. Well, I can say I'm happy to see. I am thrilled that when we have guests who come over, I have families who come over and the children are as young as four or five. They bring babies, you know, to take our Black parents tour. So there are families who are dedicated to my children are going to learn this. They're going to learn who we are in the world. And that is the greatest education parents can give to their children. So what moved you from... Oakland, California to France? Well, again, my parents and my family and my great uncle, Porter Walls, and my dreams, having seen Josephine Baker. My parents used to take us everywhere. They would take us to see Louis Armstrong perform a Pearl Bailey. And I'm like, well, okay. There was a time in the United States when Black people came on television. There was a television show called The Ed Sullivan Show. And everybody in the community would call everybody else and say, turn on the TV. There are Black people on TV. There are Black people on TV. Because before that, there really were not a lot of shows where you could get the dignity. So when I saw Miriam Makiba with this short afro and this tight dress, and she was singing about Nelson Mandela and Oliver Tombo, I mean, that didn't have anything to do with Paris. But it let me know that we had so much that we needed to explore. Dad had promised my mother, marry me. When I retire from the Navy, if we have kids, we will go to live in Paris for a year. So I was waiting. And then when I was about 11 or 12, Dad retired from the Navy. And he said, the children have moved so much, we're not going to go. And I said, I'm going. And I wanted to wait until I had children who were about 11 or 12. And so that was really my catalyst. But it seemed like my entire life would be pointed towards what I decided to do. The ancestors were working overtime. I got to meet the most fabulous people. I did go into broadcasting. I worked in Nashville, Tennessee, met a woman named Oprah Winfrey, who was leaving a radio station to go into television. And she said, well, Ricky, you need to take my job. We were introduced by another brother. He was working at the New York Times and from Nashville. And he introduced us and she said, well, you need to take this job. Nine months later, I was working in New York. I was hired by a company called National Black Network, Black-owned radio network. And my master's degree was in political science, history, Africa, the Caribbean. And so I knew a lot about the liberation movements in Africa, had a mentor, a man named Malvin Good. His brother-in-law was Paul Robeson. So Mal would tell me, how do you know all this stuff about liberation movements and about our history? I'd say it's been my passion since I was a little kid. So that would push me. And because I had taken a little French in high school, college, you know, I spoke a little bit of French so I could speak to some of the African delegates at the UN. And I knew that I could make it. 
I knew that I could make it. Okay, let's go forward to Paris. I did go into television. I was a business reporter. I was an entertainment reporter with BET, interestingly enough. I did all kinds of stuff. You know how you're anchoring, reporting. And eventually I was hired as a travel reporter. The first Black woman in the United States to be hired as an international travel reporter. 1990, traveling all over the world and everywhere I went, there was our history. And I was just flummoxed. Also, I had lived in Saudi Arabia and when I was married, and my husband, who was from Maryland, Baltimore, in fact, historic Baltimore, Maryland, we were both shocked that there were so many Black people in Saudi Arabia. We always said Saudi Arabia, we were in Jeddah and in uh, Dammam, in Al-Khobar. And I said, wow, this really looks like Oakland. (laughs) They were all shades of black. That's when I really learned that wherever you go, find out what the culture requires of you and then do that. Because we were treated as black Americans and there were a bunch of us over there. We were treated with great respect. Because, you know, if you give some black people a house, a car, a bunch of vacation, a nice salary, a lot of freedom, we're like, okay, what can we not do? What is it that's going to keep you from kicking us out of this situation? So that's when I found out you must, wherever you go, find out if you have to get on Google, what am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? And I'm going to fast forward in 1994. I had a two-week assignment to come to Paris. My film crew and I, we did two weeks. We did the opening of Disneyland Paris and wineries in Loire Valley. And I love the people. It was like, oh, I could do that. And so in 1997, packed up my 11-year-old daughter. We rented our house, sold a car, and came to Paris for what was to have been a year. And within two weeks, friends started coming over and saying, okay, we know you want to find out where the Black history, wherever you go. And I did that. And I take them on informal tours. We go to where Marcus Garvey had hung out or founder of Negro history, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, where he strolled or the nightclub that Langston Hughes got his first job as a busboy in this nightclub. It's all here. And it's all still alive. The places themselves are closed, but you can go to that building. You can go into the theater where Josephine Baker first performed in 1925. You can go to the place where she lived. And within a year, other people began coming. I had a constant stream of people coming over because I was only going to stay for a year. And by the time that year was up, my daughter was in school. She was learning to speak French. I liked it. It was safe. I liked the way I was treated. And I decided that I would stay a little longer. And so now, as of 2023, it will have been 25 years that we've been here and 24 years for Black Parents Tours. That's amazing. And so finding yourself then landing in Paris, because you mentioned that you were moving to different places, you were going to different places. And so mm-hmm. what was it specifically about the Black history in Paris that says this is where I want to be in the area in which I want to explore? What was intriguing about that? Of all the places that I've been, I think I've been to five of the continents. I felt most comfortable in Paris. I spent about a year researching the history of Paris, France, 
to know that Marseille was the first major city, Marseille in the south of France on the Mediterranean. It's now called the gateway to Africa. But Marseille was the first major port city. And Africans came here long before there was a thing called enslavement. Then Africans came here. In fact, Paris, and this was a surprising thing, Paris is named in honor of an African goddess, Isis. And when I learned that, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I felt so comfortable. Just that would be historically, but just day to day, I come into this country, I'm with my 11-year-old daughter, and people would see us and they would wave. And, you know, we got to know people. And I'll never forget walking along the Champs-Élysées one day. And there was an elder woman walking in front of me. She was on a cane. Many of my friends, we all have this thing that's happened to us. When we pass someone, we kind of scrape our feet so as not to surprise them or shock them. You know, just kind of give them a warning. Somebody's coming up next to you. And I kind of scrape my feet to let her know I'm coming up next to you. And she turned to me and she says, Oh, bonjour, madame. Vous êtes trop jolie, trop belle. Not, oh my gosh, clutch my purse, but almost, I mean, I'm within a foot of her. And she turns to me and she says, oh, bonjour, madame, you're so beautiful. Or my daughter was safe wherever she went. She went to school, her first major school. You had to go through one of the largest shopping malls in the Paris area. And I would go every morning and take her to school and I'd pick her up. And uh, Well, they do that anyway. But I was worried about my child. And then I'd see all these other little kids and they're walking by. Bonjour, madame. Bonjour, madame. And they're on their way to school. And the French, it's not like the United States. You touch their children, you're dead. So they don't have a lot of that here. The children don't have that stranger danger. Even the adults, the elders, they can be out whenever they want to be out. And you don't have to worry. The only time I ever had the woman clutch her purse she clutched her purse and I said, you must be from the United States, huh? How did you know? <laughs> You're stupid. <laughs> and I think we don't realize it until we travel outside of the United States, what that comfort feels like, because we're so on guard. It's a normal part of our DNA to be on guard here in the United States. And it's that conditional bias, right? That we know what's to come or we've dealt with it for so long, then we prepare for it. And so when we don't see it, it is that sense of comfort that we weren't expecting. So I can certainly understand that. In Black history in Paris, what surprised you most to find? Mm, that Africans were here long before enslavement that Africans were here teaching the French methods of farming. We taught them animal husbandry. We taught them domestication of animals, horses. You know, the Africans of West Africa were the first to domesticate and train their horses. We taught them brain surgery, heart surgery. We taught them instruments. We taught them, many people aren't aware, I had a group of college students, and a young man kind of peeked over. We were at the Arc de Triomphe. And this young guy is kind of insinuating himself into the crew. And someone said, oh, that's little Nas X. I was like, oh, well, let me tell you about your country music. We could go to Nigeria right now. And the banjo came out of West Africa. 
and the same twangy sound that you are singing, that all came out of West Africa. People don't know that the first great master in music, well, I'll say in violin, was a Black man, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. They call him now the Black Mozart, but he taught Mozart how to perform. We have to understand who we are in terms of all of this history. The French are so proud of the obelisk that sits in the very center of their Place Concorde. But that obelisk was taken from the Temple Thebes in Luxor. It was brought to France in 1838. But that had been one of the great astronomical divining devices in Africa. And so when the French brought it here, they didn't know how to use it. And they broke it, in fact. They broke the top off of it. And they had to put some gold on top of it to make it stick and blah, 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 blah. But they were like, well, can you show us how to use this? Because it's been used in Africa, dedicated to the African pharaoh Ramesses, the Black African pharaoh Ramesses. And so the Egyptians, yeah, I know, the Egyptians were Black. The Egyptians told them, well, you know, y'all shouldn't have taken it. We're not going to show you how to use it. You should have asked us before you took it. Our history here, I love the fact that it began before enslavement. And I was going to ask you what excited you most about the Black history in Paris, but it seems like the answer is the same. Or is there something else that really excited you more than that? Well, when you think of every day that I walk out, sometimes I'm sad or, or something can happen. And I walk out and I'll say, oh, James Baldwin lived right there, <laughs> you know, or I'm walking in the footsteps of Frederick Douglass. Or, you know, when I think about the fact that most people know that Alexander Dumas was Black, the man who wrote The Three Musketeers, Count of Monte Cristo, The Man in the Iron Mask, and about 247 other books. But did you know? that his father, whose name was Alexandre Dumas, that he was one of Napoleon's greatest generals. He would lead something like 50,000 French troops. He was bad. He was amazingly powerful as a military man. He'd been born in Haiti. It's a long story, but we tell that story on our tour. And when I think about this man who was born in 1762 and what he had done, or Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the man who was the Black violinist called the most intelligent, amazing, accomplished man in French history, Black. In fact, when Chevalier de Saint-Georges died in 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte had all of his music rounded up, all of his music compositions rounded up and burned because he was so jealous of him. And it was in 1997 that someone found a trunk of his unpublished works, and they had a major concert at Versailles. And I got invited. I didn't know why I got invited, but I'm like, I like that, because I always wanted to go to Versailles, not as a tourist, but to do something significant. And so here we are seated next to the king's box, and someone whispered across to me, oh, did you know he was Black? I was like, what? Oh, now I got to go research this. Why didn't you all tell me? <laughs> you know. So there are so many reasons. There's so many things that I adore about this city. 
that have to do with our history. And it's like I told my daughter, I want you to understand who you are in the world, not as in the box of racism in the United States, but as a Black woman in this world and all that you can accomplish. Extremely important. So then how or why did you decide to parlay all of this into leading and guiding tours in Paris? Well, again, I'm the one wherever I went. I think it was the ancestors that helped me, my African Native American ancestors. I remember I was in Newport, Rhode Island, and I did a story on the very first synagogue in the United States. And it was built, I can't remember the year, but it was built in the 1700s. And the Jewish people were afraid that they would be persecuted and run out of Newport, Rhode Island. So when they built it, they built a tunnel that went from the middle of the synagogue out to the ocean. So I'm interviewing the rabbi at this church, this very historic church. And he tells me, as we're about to end the interview, he says, oh, but Miss Stevenson, let me tell you something about the Black history of this synagogue. And he pulled aside part of where the lectern was. And there was a tunnel and a ladder that went out to the ocean. And he said, yeah, we became a stop when we didn't need to use it to protect ourselves. We used this secret tunnel as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Or I was in Hobson's Bluff, Illinois. (laughs) It's a dude ranch. And this farm had been founded by a French family going back to 1750 something. And the father of the family, he took me through this old farmhouse to the original. I mean, they had built it up and expanded it. And really, it was beautiful kind of, you know, weekend getaway for the kids in Chicago. And he took me into the original building, original part of the house. And he pulled back a closet and he said, Our farmhouse was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Now I'm going to show you Frederick Douglass's signature because he came here to uh, congratulate us to, you know, in support of what we were doing. Everywhere I went, Orchard Street Church in Baltimore, there's a tunnel that runs from Orchard Street Church to Lexington Market. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Everywhere I went, there was history. Penn Center in South Carolina on one of the islands off the coast. My seven years as a travel reporter opened up a world to me of places to see and the history of Black people. I'll never forget, I was sent to do, it was going to be a quick report, three days in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And when we landed, we got into the town, Halifax. I was like, wait a minute, this is awfully Black. How long have you guys been here? <laughs> I was like, how long have you Black people been here? And they said, oh, we came over in probably 1777, 1778, when the British lost the war to the American terrorists, excuse me, revolutionaries. They told us, they told our ancestors, these people are so demonic and bloodthirsty that if they find out that you've been fighting on the side of the British, they will massacre you. So the British said, here's what we're going to do to thank you. We're going to set up ships and we're going to take you to Halifax, up Canada. And that's how there's this whole storied, very historic, storied community 
in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Thank you for sharing a part of Black Paris Tours with us today. The history is very intriguing, and I really look forward to meeting you one day. What is the website? We are at www.blackparistour, no S at the end, Black Paris Tour. And you can also find me by looking for Ricky Stevenson. We're on Facebook, Instagram, we're everywhere. Again, blackparistour.com, Ricky Stevenson, founder and CEO. Thank you again so much for joining us today and for sharing your story with us. Merci, Madam Harley. I look forward to meeting you very soon and to all of those who may be listening. Merci et à bientôt. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. Follow me on social media and don't forget to join that travel club. Black History Month is one of my favorite times of the year. Certainly, Black History is history and it's 365. But in February, we honor and pay tribute to Black history, Black heritage, and Black achievements. So that's what makes me excited about February. Today, I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Bernard Turner, Executive Director of the Black Metropolis National Heritage Area Commission. Hello, Bernard, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello, Javon. Very nice to be here. Thank you very much. It is certainly my pleasure. Now, what is the Black Metropolis National Heritage Area Commission? Actually, it is an organization that has been focused for many years on helping Bronzeville, a neighborhood in Chicago, become designated as a national heritage area. And for those who are not so familiar with national heritage areas, there are 55 of them in the United States, all over the country, that represent a variety of different historical, cultural, and demographic stories that we tell about the United States. And you differentiate them from national parks because national parks, you know, like Yellowstone and Yosemite, they're national parks forever. National heritage areas need to be rejuvenated or as we call it, reauthorized after a few years. So we are focused on making Bronzeville a national heritage area. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for the explanation as far as that heritage site versus the National Park Service, because a lot of the heritage sites are in national park areas and governed by them. And it's just so important that these destinations and these facilities are preserved and kept alive and the stories are told. Now, how did the commission begin? Really, it's been going on for maybe about 12 years, maybe a few more years, by leaders in the community who recognize that Bronzeville is such an important historical and cultural part of our city and part of our country that we need to have it recognized and we need to 
preserve all of those buildings, all of those stories, and all of those experiences that you can find in Brownsville and that were really, really part of the United States fabric. So it's been going on for a few years and several Congresses, meaning we have to have a bill submitted to Congress in order to get it passed and to get the National Heritage Area designated. Do the different commissions operate independent or as chapters of the larger commission, if you will, when you're talking specifically about different cities? Yeah, this is a specific term for the organization here in Chicago, and specifically in Brownsville. Commission is not a general term. It only relates to Brownsville. What is that area that defines the Black Metropolis Historic District in Chicago? It is the original district that was defined by the restrictive covenant maps, which existed here starting maybe in the 20s and 1930s, that show you where the Black Belt was. And we didn't really talk about that yet, but the Black Belt was the place where Black people came when they migrated from the South. Specifically, they were not able to move to other neighborhoods because of restrictive covenants, which meant they people in other neighborhoods would not sell or rent to Black people. So it was called the Black Belt. And those boundaries are from about 12th Street in Chicago, which is Roosevelt Road, to 71st Street on the south, and the lake on the east, and the railroad, or what we call the expressway, the Dan Ryan Expressway on the west. So it's a pretty large area, but it's defined by those boundaries that I mentioned before. Has the Black Belt or the name or term given way to Bronzeville today? Actually, the Black Belt name has given way to the Black Metropolis. And that's where our name comes from because of a book that was published back maybe in the 1930s called The Black Metropolis, which tells you about all of the cultural all the historic, all of the people who worked here to make it into a metropolis, meaning a place where there's a lot of entrepreneurism, where it becomes a city within a city, where you have all of the amenities and all of the businesses in this metropolis that you would have in a larger city of Chicago. That's kind of what it migrated to as far as the name goes. Because I'm not originally from Chicago, but I've been here for more than 20 years now. And so knowing Bronzeville quite well, or at least hearing Bronzeville very often. So is that an area within the Black Metropolis Historic District, or how much of the historic district does Bronzeville consume? Well, Bronzeville is kind of a nickname for this whole entity that we're talking about. And a lot of people wonder, well, where does that name come from? It was something that was given to the neighborhood by some of the leaders. And it also goes back to a beauty pageant that was held back in the 1920s called Miss Bronze USA. And it was a beauty pageant of women of color. 
So they called it Miss Bronze USA, and that's where the name came from. So it's really a part of one of Chicago's 77 community areas, but Bronzeville is a nickname, and I can say that it's stuck. Well, it certainly has, (laughs) as it was one of my first introductions moving to Chicago is to know Bronzeville. And so I would imagine, of course, that Hyde Park is part of that metropolis and historic district as well. Well, actually, Hyde Park is part of what we would consider to be the whole area of the National Heritage Area, but Hyde Park is a separate community area. Tell us more about your collaborations and partnerships. Well, we have many, many collaborations and partnerships. When you think of organizations that have been in the neighborhood for years, such as the Bronzeville Historical Society, we have also collaborations with colleges and universities, such as Illinois Tech, the Illinois Institute of Technology, the University of Chicago. We have a collaboration with the Black Metropolis Research Consortium, which is a database where you can do research. We also work with the Chicago History Museum, the Camp Douglas Restoration Foundation, and we also work with Blacks in Green and the Bronzeville Trail Task Force. Many, many collaborations and many assets are part of our national heritage area. And what about your programs? We are right now, I guess I can tell you the news, right before the Christmas break, Congress voted on the National Heritage Area Act. And the National Heritage Area Act was passed by Congress unanimously in the Senate and overwhelmingly in the House of Representatives and it included Bronzeville and as a new national heritage area. So we will now be the Bronzeville Black Metropolis National Heritage Area. And we're beginning to work on our programming right now. That's exciting and congratulations. That's a big achievement that would allow you to further your programs. And I would imagine your collaborations and partnerships as well. Absolutely. Now, what is your website for more information? The website is blackmetropolis.org. Easy to remember, blackmetropolis.org. Make sure you check it out. These organizations and commissions are extremely important to our history and to our heritage to keep it alive. And as you said earlier, Bernard, telling those stories and making sure that they're told for generations to come. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit travelingculturati.com for more information.